Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody into Garden of Doom and we are continuing our theme with tying into the NACON conference, Nephilim Anthropology, though I think that it's been changed to Anthrosophy, uh, which I think I'm finally pronouncing correctly, uh, conference, which is October 29th and 30th in the UK, but virtual tickets are also available. So I encourage everyone to look at the pricing and buy yourself a ticket for that. And you can see a whole lot of speakers and some of them uh, you'll recognize from these shows, including this very show where we have Gary Wayne. We're very happy to have him. He hails from Vancouver, Canada. So Gary, thanks for, so much for being uh, in the Garden of Doom. Well, thank you for inviting me. So happy to be with you and looking forward to, I think, having a stimulating conversation that your audience may hopefully uh, brace some eye yep. brows and maybe connect a few dots. So uh, just uh, want to thank you again for inviting me to the show and uh, very much looking forward to the uh, conference at the end of October, all things being equal that we can all travel. And uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's going to be a good conference. Yeah, and another uh, plaintive plea to the audience out there, to you and any of your friends who might be interested in this sort of thing, buy tickets virtual if, if, if need be, because if enough tickets sell, they're going to fly me over there, because I, I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm the person without substantive knowledge. I'm the, the non-presenter part of the conference, so I'm obviously the first cut, budget cut, um, so like even like after the food, so... Uh, you know, you go to middle rail to bottle rail drinks. No, I'm, I'm before that. Uh, so uh, buy tickets so I can get a, a trip to England. Anyway, so enough of that stuff. Gary is one of the experts and any of folks who have sort of 
toyed in or dabbled in or gone a few levels deeper into uh, so, sort of the esoteric world, uh, studies of ancient religions, prehistory, Genesis, uh, and a lot of things tied to the Abrahamic biblical end of times uh, religions, you, you'll, you'll recognize the name. He works with some of the, the top names in, in that discipline, that field of study. Um, and he's written a book called The Genesis Conspiracies. Uh, he is expert in giants. Uh, he has a lot of information on, on end of days and the four horsemen um, and just all stuff that I think is super cool. I mean, Genesis may be the genesis of this show, Garden of Doom. Um, the name probably isn't exactly an accident, though that's not how it came about, but I'm sure I'm some you know, Freudian or Jungian level, uh, it was tied together. So without further ado, Gary, I'm going to let you uh, lead and, and take us into prehistory slash Genesis, if they're one and the same, if they're not, you start wherever you, you think the story should be told because you are the storyteller. No problem. So for people who may not be uh, aware of me, uh, um, I call myself a Christian contrarian. Uh, so I, I, I'm biblically based, but I tend to want to verify everything for myself. I don't take uh, at face value what somebody says or what somebody says something says. I like to do my own research and lead to my own conclusions. And so I not only apply that to my research scripturally, but outside the Bible. So I... When I got into biblical studies, I was already a mythology buff. I was already a history buff. And so I just saw so many parallels between the two that when I wrote the Genesis 6 conspiracy, I wanted to connect a lot of those dots that talk about prehistory and also history in end time prophecy and show the different lens that the two sides are talking about. Uh, one might be a monotheist lens for it general perspective and another general perspective would be a polytheist lens. I recognize there's a secular lens as well. They're a little bit more connected than what most people might think uh, on that other lens, but they view the same history, prehistory, and the end time in a similar manner. They just have a different perspective on it. And so connecting those dots was one of the things that, that I really like to do. So when I talk about prehistory, um, I like to talk about uh, a time before what an event that happened in basically all cultures all around the world on all continents except for one and who knows what we'll find in Antarctica uh, where a record might be find, found. Who knows with all of the interesting information that's coming out of there, but it's an event called the Great Flood and it's one of our great sort of joint histories that's in over 500 different cultures around the world. And it is uh, telling the same event about the same characters and in about the same kind of period of time. Um, and each of the religious sort of aspects will have their own type of dating, the, the, the legendary aspects that would go with it from a myth perspective, which I recognize a lot of cultures like the Greeks, for example, would consider their myths and legends as history, just as First Nations in North America would consider their legends as history. So we want to be respectful of that from um, understanding that what some people might think is myth, other people look at it with a little bit more sense of accuracy and urgency, I guess, if I would put it that way. 
So the flood is one of those events, as I said, it crosses all cultures. And it's a time that happens biblically before about 2300, 2350 to 2450 BC, right on about there. Secular chronology would be about 2950 to 3050, depending on which historian that you're looking at. And there could have been other floods before that. And so there's a period of time there that is kind of fixed that is has even though some of the ancient Greek historians might call it as a little bit nebulous, uh, even at their point in time, they still kind of relied on that. But there's there's something that crosses and Josephus in his writings, he referenced a lot of different writers that wrote about the flood in prehistory. And this is a period of time that isn't necessarily from a, from a biblical perspective more than, uh, let's say, when, when people look from a biblical perspective, generally the doctrine is 6,000 years old for the, uh, for the age of the earth. So this would be sort of in the first 1,500 years of that sort of time frame if the earth is only 6,000 years old. I say that from a contrarian perspective because we only get the genealogies coming down from Adam. Right. And so uh, that dates to be about 6,000 years. But if you're somebody like myself that says, if, if this is the word of God, then you can't have contradictions in, in Scripture. So if you look at the Eden account of Adam and the Day 6 account, you get too many con- contradictions. And so you're either you're, you're you're in a position where you're looking at either the Bible's not accurate or there's two different creations. Right. And, and so there's an age factor here that one may want to look at. And within that, you've got not only as in the book of Peter, where it talks about a day is a thousand years when it's talking about the destruction of the earth that was in the water and out of the water. Uh, that's now reserved for fire in the end time, as it was sort of destroyed at, a, at, at some time in the beginning, which is generally thought Genesis 1 to 1, 2. So there's two different things going on in prehistory in terms of the age. Mm-hmm. And one is the standard doctrine that comes down from the church, and then there's what the Bible actually says. So you can have like a thousand years of some of the gaps between the let's say day six, day seven, and then whenever Adam is created based on the second creation. And or you can also have an older uh, Earth, uh, and also you could also have additional days after day seven, so to speak, because we don't know what day Adam was created on if there's a second creation. But it's that renewal of the Earth aspect that's sort of the wild card. You yeah. can translate Genesis one in two different ways. So it either was void or it became void and formless. And I won't go through in a in a three hour litigation of it, but. People want to get a hold of me through my website at the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I've got a document I can send them on that. And so that would take the world back even older. So if we look at the age of the Earth in terms of what is prehistory, what we have that sort of reaches into prehistory of any sort of document or mythology, it's basically just before the flood. Then we have this unknown time uh, that's before that. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and basically, it, it, that's the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, the evolution trial uh, in, in the United States, where uh, the, the lawyers argued that, how do we know what a day is to God? 
you know, the, was he going by the Earth Day? There was spinning of the rotation, or were we were going by God's Day, which could be anything. And you know, I guess that was enough for the jury. Um, so uh, basically, you know, you're arguing that argument could be found in the Bible itself. There's plenty of gaps. I mean, this six thousand years comes from people who have. Listen, I don't want to diminish their work, but they they take they took a lot of time doing it. But they basically took the the ages of the the begetting and the begattings and when they had their children and you know did the the venn diagrams or whatever you want to call it uh you know the graphs down uh in, in straight linear time and, and came up with you know roughly that figure and there's you know even discrepancies i mean i i, I had to um to what's that uh, what yeshiva trained uh, Jewish uh, uh, experts on, and e even there within that discipline, there's a disagreement of you know whether you, they were off by about a hundred years or so. So now I know that that's not a significant amount of time in the grand scheme of things, but it's still e even in probably one of the more orthodox uh, interpretations of scripture. There, there's you know a margin of error. So anyway, I just want to interpose there. Yeah, and what's also interesting where it sort of crosses over to other religions and mythologies around the world is is in days one through six, you have a separation of the waters, which you know creates the firmament so that life can be created on the earth thereafter. And you get similar accounting in all of the different religions around the world. And what's interesting about that, because that's changing things from chaos into order is sort of the transition as it, it shows up in, in, in other religions. And what's interesting about that uh, verse in, in Second um, Peter that I talked about is that it was talking about the earth that was in the water that was out of the water. And so you have, if you have a destruction of the earth before day one, which is Psalms 104 would call a renewal of the earth when God sends a spirit, then you would have had that earth probably destroyed right down to its foundations from the size of the angelic war from a biblical perspective or from a polytheist perspective, the war of the gods is recorded in the Vedas, that you would have that firmament, which is the waters outside, which would collapse down on the earth and create that chaos. And then you pick up in all the different religions around the world, very, very similar, some subtle differences with this separation of the waters that creates the Middle Earth, as in the Lord of the Rings, for example, uh, um, that creates this antediluvian world that is that specific time when the giants um, are are reigning. Now, what we don't know is, is, is all, of, are all of the megaliths that are dated back then, or even older, is that part of the extended time of, let's say, of a thousand days after the renewal of the earth, when the gods first created uh, buildings and things on the earth? Or was that even go back even further to another age? Uh, and that's the speculative part where it really gets sort of interesting. And I understand you can translate uh, the Bible two different ways in, in, in Genesis 1 coming out of the original Hebrew, but it's the other scriptures that show up throughout the Bible that indicate there was more going back in prehistory and in the War of the Gods that seems to be before the Flood. And it seems to be before the creation of humankind in this sort of realm of creation. And we don't know 
is, is kind of the point is, is what happened before that. Now, in polytheism, you do get some variations with Lemuria, for example, as being sort of a parent civilization that would then produce the, the civilizations that became like Atlantis and civilizations like that. But we don't understand what happened when there was a division amongst the gods and what time frame that took place before things restarted after that um, that war that was amongst the angels or the gods. So, yeah, I mean, even even in Genesis itself, which, uh, I mean, listen, you're more of a, a scholar on that than I'll ever be, but even in the description of the Nephilim, they describe them as basically the great men of renown, the heroes of old. Uh, some people have said the giants of old. Um, but the point is of old. What, what, what's old and what's renowned when you're in the, you know, the opening paragraphs, the opening pages of Genesis? There's, there is no old. <laughs> There's, so there has to be older than old. And you know, even, even Cain, who, who was, you know, he was banished to a land with a name with goat herders. So it, you know, to, to take it literally as those days is, it, it, it's it you know there's uh, you know to be casual I call them clot, plot loopholes but it, it does imply that there was a, a time before time. Yeah, well the thing one thing you, there, yeah there you get lots of passages that uh, suggest there's a time before the time when it talks about the mighty men of old old uh, understand that the Torah comes down to Moses in about 1500 BC so. That would be quite a bit after the flood, so they could easily be writing that down in, as the time of old as being before the flood. But the problem is, is when you get into the book of Joshua, when you see some of those terms like the the ancient of days or the days of old, those those words are different in Hebrew, and they they start to reflect an older age. So the sentiment I agree with is exactly there in terms of there are passages that. Um, would suggest that we have a lot more going on in this place we called Earth than what the short time frame that we have right now is. And that's where it gets really interesting is how do we resolve what actually happened? And with all the information that's out there, how do we connect the dots? And I think you see a similarity in the narratives of an extraordinary sort of basis, just that different lens that people are looking at it through um, that tells about the prehistory. And I think we even get a tradition of this war of the gods in many, not all, but in many of the religions and uh, ancient texts that, that actually took place. So that goes back, we're not sure how long. Yeah, well, the Vedic certainly have something that could be described uh, like that. The Atlantis myth in the, in the in the Greek, which is also from the Egyptian, uh, talks a lot about something like that. Um, and there's also in in the Greek there was a, a flood, and you know, and then you got well, war, you know, war of gods and titans. Which really, what's the difference except for just the the name? Um, but the, the, I think the golden age of heroes, which is not the first age, uh, you know, according to the Greeks, they use the same terms, almost almost word for word, the heroes of old, the great men of renown. Uh, and then yeah. in lots of First Nations uh, and indigenous cultures, you have, you know, the, the different ages of man 
I hear most often the you know yeah. five ages of man, and the, you know depending yeah. on who, you know which culture it is, we we might be in a different age, but ne- nevertheless, there's there's you know been ages before. So I, I'm sure the, those must be some of the things that you're talking about. Um, but if yeah. but you can either correct or elaborate well, on that. Yeah, and I'd like to maybe elaborate a little bit on it. And so, yeah, we need to be open that there's a time that's even older than what standard chronology for Christians would would put into place. We also need to understand the terminology, um, no matter what perspective you're coming from, with what is used in terms of the pantheons of the polytheist nations and religions. And so you have this, this unique term called parent gods, Mm-hmm. and offspring gods. So uh, for people who may not be sort of familiar with that, it's like Kronos being the father of Zeus, right? And you have, you know, Osiris as being an offspring god. In Sumeria, you've got Anu, let's say, as a parent god, and Anki and Enlil as, as offspring gods, which is kind of a unique kind of concept. But the point of the matter is, is they both reign, and they both reign at different periods of time. And the standard sort of mythology that goes with it is, is that there was a war amongst the gods, which is could be another war or it could be this older war. We don't know. And within that, you have the offspring gods overthrowing the parent gods and taking over. And then when you get the stories of the offspring gods, whether it's the Balim of, of the Bible or the Olympian gods, and you get the same type of demigod creations. You get like the Nephilim in before the flood, and then you get the Raphaim after the flood biblically. If you if you sort of look at that with El and Baal, uh, El is the father of Baal, is a parent god who disappears because Baal takes over just as all of the religions around the world talk about uh, one of the sons moving up to take over. They both create giants. Yeah. And they both create them at different points in time. And it seems that the Balim seems to be after the flood. Zeus seems to be after the flood, particularly with Hercules and the tales of that. So I think what you've got is two different creations of these giants that are going on. One that's before the flood. And they're either overthrown as in polytheism or biblically they're put into the abyss. And then after the flood, the offspring gods who didn't get put into the abyss... Uh, they are now ruling on Earth, and they're going to recreate giants again. And these giants don't tend to be quite the same size, quite the same power as the giants before the Flood, but they're also named after <laughs> giants before the Flood as well. So you've got like Hercules and Heracles, for, for example. And... You also have this conflation, as you as you talked about, titans of heaven and titans of the earth. And in Greek mythology, that would be like a titan would be a god or an Olympian god or a parent god. But you also get these titans of the earth like Atlas. And Atlas was a demigod and one of the sons of Poseidon, part human, part god, as a demigod. And he's called a hero and a titan. Mm-hmm. And Poseidon seems to have the same stories as Iapetus. Uh, which was a parent god that ruled with Kronos. And so you just you seem to have this time that is standard throughout the world where you've got 
one set of gods ruling before the flood and then another set of gods ruling after the flood. And that what either there is a, a war there or uh, there's just a, uh, a minor sort of skirmish compared to the original war uh, of the gods is, is where some of the speculation comes in. But I think if you're looking at that flood and then the types of the gods that they're talking about before and after the flood and the types of giants, you start to get a connection across cultures and religions that starts to mark the time a little bit better into what we know as the start of history and then what would be prehistory before that. Okay. Well, I, I think that's a, a, a good point of agreement there to, I, I guess, con continue the narrative, though. Uh, I, I At some point, I want to know what the difference between Rephaim and Belaim, I think, was the, the term you used. Uh, what, what are those two uh, uh, groups? Sure. So in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which is the biblical passage for the creation of the giants, you get the word giant in the King James, Ver in King James Version Bible, and in more modern standards, you would get the word Nephilim. Uh, and giant in the King James Version Bible goes back to the Hebrew word nephil, I am is the male plural. And it's rooted in a world called nephal, and the nephilim are the fallen ones. They're similar, but they're different. So biblically, the nephilim would be of the, of the Shamayim, uh, which are the heavenly ones, uh, and they're the fallen ones of the heavenly ones, and then the fallen produce the Nephilim. That's where you get that sort of consistency between titans of the earth, titans of heaven, anunnakis of heaven, watchers of the earth. They're talking about two different classes, so you have to understand the difference between a demigod and and the god that created them, or biblically the angel that would have created them. And Nephilim only shows up three times in the Bible. Right. as a Hebrew word. Once in Genesis 6-4, before the flood, two times in Numbers 13-33, when it's talking about the Anakim uh, as being the descendants of, of giants, which is Nephilim, but the Anakim weren't Nephilim, even though it says twice there. That's the embellished part of the report that used to terrify the Israelites. The Anakim are giants. And they're taller than the Israelites, and they're taller than the hybrids that are there. So you got the, the Anakim, then you get the people that are taller in Numbers 1333, Deuteronomy 1, a couple other passages that will distinguish the difference between the taller ones and the, uh, then the, the giants after the flood, the Anakim. Deuteronomy 2 describes the Anakim as giants, and that word is Raphaim, as opposed to Nephilim as the embellished part of the port. Report. Also in Deuteronomy 2, you get the Horim are giants, Raphaim. You also get the Emim and the Zamzuzim as described as giants, but also goes back to the word, Hebrew word Raphaim. And the word Raphaim actually shows up in the Bible, in the King James Version Bible, twice as, as translated directly as that word, as opposed to being translated as giant. And that shows up in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants, in the time of Abraham, where there's a tribe of Raphaim. And then in the land in Genesis 15 that God is going to give Abraham, that includes the Raphaim, um, as part of that. 
right? So these are post-Diluvian giants. And so Og would be the last of the giants after the flood, last of the Raphaim, as the original Raphaim created after the flood. Goliath would be considered Raphaim as well, because that word goes back to Raphaim as well. The word Rapha for Raphaim uh, with it was I am male plural is used 25 times in the Old Testament compared to three times for the Nephilim. Only one other time is the word giant referenced um, to a different word in the Old Testament. So in the book of Job, you've got the word giant used, and that goes back to the Hebrew word gibor or giborim, which more people might be more familiar with. And that's the same word as mighty one in Genesis 6, 4, that describes the giants. They were the mighty ones of old. And so it's when you look at why the Bible distinguishes a different one seems to be that Nephilim lived before the flood, Raphaim lived after the flood, and that these giants weren't as large. After the after the flood, or as powerful, or maybe had received as many gifts from the gods that would have been passed on through the DNA DNA to uh, to produce the giants because they're produced physically according to the Bible and in most accountings around the world. Although there are some accounts of creations like centaurs and some other peoples that are created within the cloud, but that's a different type of sort of violation against the laws of creation, as I would describe it. Okay, so. Let's see if I understand the summation. Nephilim are giants created by, and Nephilim is sort of a a over uh, you know overarching state arching statement for a sort of demigod. So whether it's a a, a god and a man, um, or a, an angel and uh, a, a woman, uh, their their offspring would be Nephilim before the flood. After the flood, you have the surviving yes. Nephilim, who are Raphaim, but they, they seem to have, uh, their, their, their bloodlines have been watered down, so to speak, and with that, their size and powers have been watered down. Not exactly. Not exactly. Okay, so what did, what's wrong there? What did I, am I oversimplifying things? Yes. No, no. Uh, I like the, uh, from my perspective, I like the description of the Nephilim giants before the flood. Okay. Now, how giants show up after the flood, biblically, we're not told. In polytheist accounts, we get survival of giants like uh, Tishnan in uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, being two-thirds god, one-third human, being a demigod, and surviving the flood with a family of giants that are going to reproduce after the flood. And you also get in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh being created, even though there's a Gilgamesh before the flood. Remember, you've got giants that are named after the flood. So in the Book of Enoch, where it's in the Book of Giants, where it's talking about Gilgamesh, that's before the flood. When you're talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh, when it's talking about Gilgamesh, he's the son of Lugabanda and uh, the mother goddess uh, and son, as I recall. And he's also two-thirds god, one-third human. So you have a, in the epic, you have a survival story, and you also have a second incursion. And the second incursion, one, uh, giants aren't as large as the original giants. And even Gilgamesh is holding up Pishtun or Zayazudra as uh, some of the other translations of the same story would, would call uh, the, the Sumerian giant Noah, holds this survivor 
in a higher esteem because he's seeking them out, right? And right. he wants to get the wisdom, whatever else that he, he can glean off of Atnapishtim. And so you have the Raphaim are ones that would have been created after the flood by the offspring gods. The Nephilim would have been created by the parent gods. Whether or not they survived the flood as well, or they're only created after the flood, that's up for speculation, and you can make a case biblically for both, or you could make the case biblically for one or the other. Uh, and polytheism, you get the same sort of story where you've got Zeus creating Hercules after the flood uh, by the timing of, of the mythology. But you also have um, Deucalion, who is the son of Prometheus from before the flood. So he's a giant as well, surviving the flood. So you get what, I, what I'm saying is you get two different stories as to how giants survive the flood or show up after the flood is a better way of looking at it. I'm open to giants surviving the flood, but if you look at who the Raphaim are, and the best way to link them back to the offspring gods is through the Ugaritic texts and the Baalim, Baal, Mount Hermon. That Baal is the one who creates the Raphaim or the Raphaim. And that there is some sort of fertility issue with these giants after the flood. So we're also seeing some sort of degradation from the original Nephilim, which didn't seemingly have any trouble reproducing. And they're wanting to bring Baal and Ashtaroth back to recreate more of the demigod Raphaim kings. So these are Raphaim kings too, offsprings of offspring gods and human females, but somehow not quite as big and not quite as... Um, maybe talented with extra gifts. So uh, if you look at the size of the giants after the flood, we get two descriptions. Uh, one being from, uh, actually we get three descriptions. You've got Goliath that is 400 years after the time of Og, and he's going to be six cubits in a span, and he's the king of Gath, so I would use a royal cubit. Some people might use a common cubit. But as a king of Gath, and as Josephus says, you should use for the kings the royal cubit for the measurements of the giants. He would be uh, 11 feet 3 inches, okay. taller as small as 9 feet 9 inches using um, a common cubit. Og's bed is 7 feet, um, or is, uh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, 9 cubits by 4 cubits. And again, he's the king of Edrai. He's the last of the post-Diluvian giants. And that would translate in a royal cubit to being just over 16 feet and 7 feet wide. So he's going to be 4 or 5 feet wide, and he's going to be somewhere between 12 and 14 to 15 feet tall. And so you see sort of a degradation in size down to Goliath. And the other second creation story with uh, dimensions that seem to fit is Gilgamesh, who's talked about not only in the Ugaritic text, but also in the Sumerian text as being 11 cubits tall. And that's going to take him as the king of Uruk, again, being using a royal cubit as over 19 feet tall. And he's also four cubits wide. So he's going to be four to seven. Uh, he's going to be, say, six to seven feet wide. And the giants were, were thought to have a two-to-one height-to-width ratio versus three-to-one, which made them extremely stout, as they're described in the in the Bible, or as, as strong that goes back to Azaz, which means stout, which doesn't mean fat. It means just wide 
and full of muscle. So like a NFL lineman or a WWF wrestler, these weren't just tall, gangly uh, beings. They were powerful fleet of foot beings. And so you have these, these giants that are sort of a maximum size to under 20 feet that we kind of get for documentation after the flood. The giants before the flood, on a reserve basis, were thought to be 20 to 40 feet tall. Some people say 40 to 100, and some people would even take the uh, the description out of the Book of Enoch, which is a bit problematic, but you get in the Aramaic version, 300 cubits. In the Giaz version out of Ethiopia, you get um, the word L's, but it's 300. We don't know what an L is. So they would use that to say they're at least 450 feet tall. I'm thinking that's getting to be a little bit large. Yeah. What we do know is from the <laughs> from the uh, reliefs is is that the ratios tend to put them somewhere between 20 to 40 or 50 feet tall before the flood, but smaller after the flood. So, did some of these Nephilim survive the flood? It's a distinct possibility, but then you also have the Raphaim, which are created after the flood. But biblically, we don't get Nephilim being described after the flood. The interesting thing is, is in polytheism, is you get the four different races of the Aryans. I want to put a pin in that, because right? I definitely want and, to get to uh, that in a second. But, I mean, just... Non-biblically speaking, if we take this as being correct, that there were people that were 9 to 30 feet high. Uh, uh, well, let's forget about the 9. The more like the 14 to 30 feet high. What did they eat? And so that would imply that, the, that they'd have to be around while there was the megafauna uh, around, which you know I think the last megafauna sort of were gone you know, around 10, 12,000 years ago. Um, though I, some survive longer, but uh, um, so it it does put the time frame back a little bit further, it, it, you know. Unless you just uh, go with they they just ate you know two or three times you know what we ate of this, uh, but the same kind of food source, which I suppose is possible well, as were, well. Well, the larger the size, the more the consumption, which is why you want to make sure that if you're looking at the evidence that we have around us that the environment would have to be able to support that size, right? So if it's that time period just before the flood, um, I think, you know, 20 to 40 feet high, you could support that because they're eating not only, you know, the, the plants and whatever's being grown, but they're, they're eating animals, but they're also eating humans, ah. right? They, they were cannibalistic and they also drank the blood of humans afterwards as well. So, um, Human would be humans would have been looked almost like cattle to them. You know, it's interesting, and I, I don't put too much stake in this in terms of the lost uh, book of King Og, even though it has connections back to the book of Giants of Manichaeans, which goes back to the book of Enoch, and this is translated supposedly out of a copy that came out of the Vatican. They basically looked at um, humans as cattle, right. <laughs> or worse, as worms and other sort of descriptions and, and not certainly the demigod status that they were and they ate them um, but we get that from a lot of accounts so th I think there would have been enough uh, to uh, to enable the giants to survive even though they, they had a good reproductive ability before the flood versus not so much after the flood they were also warring with each other 
So they're murdering each other en masse and then stealing all of their wives and their harems and things like that before the flood. So they were almost self-limiting <laughs> um, how much of the population of them that there actually were. Right. Okay. So, okay. So you were about to get into the, the four Aryan, I, I think, groups, which uh, just for ancient perspectives, you know, Aryan simply means great men. Um, it, it's uh, it's it it's comes from Iranic or Iranic consumarian, uh, but it, it's it's not, it's not what you know. It's not like the Aryan Brotherhood in U.S. prisons or anything like that. It's a it's a far more ancient word that that uh, yeah. Yeah, over the last seven decades or yeah. so has gotten you know has was perverted by a particular political group. So let's just, let's just make that as a disclaimer so that you can feel free to you know go forward uh, you know from there. So okay, cool. The technical term, yeah, the technical. The technical technical term for them would be Indo-European or Indo-Aryan, okay, uh, and used as the same sort of term. And uh, but that is where the word sort of Aryan sort of gets shortened for, and all of the different things connotations that, that goes forward with. And this this is a group of people that have a language that is sort of unexplained, that doesn't come through any other of the language lanes that that come down after the after the flood. So. Uh, this is thought to be an ancient language, uh, which would more support a survival aspect, or at least somehow records of that language surviving that was retaught after the flood. But from a polytheist perspective, it's the continuation of the language of the giants before the flood. So typically they show up after the flood in the uh, Asia Minor area which in polytheist <clears throat> legend and, and history has them escaping out of a place called Tartarus after the flood. And Tartarus is another name for the abyss. So some of the giants in the wars before the flood were put into uh, the abyss and somehow they escape into uh, northwest uh, uh, middle Middle East into the Turkey area that we would know of today, and there's four distinctions of these different peoples on where they're, go they're going to settle, and there's a few different descriptions in terms of how they look. So you have, you know, a group that's settling in in uh, Asia Minor. You've got a group that is settling in the Greek islands. You've got a Greek that's settling more north up in, into Scythia, um, and the, you get two. I would say out of the four. Or groups of people you get uh, two distinct descriptions and I'd also understand that some of these would migrate into the into Persia and then over into the Indus Valley which would have been the same group of peoples so the ones that migrate into the Persia area which are the Aryans that the uh, Persian kings take their lineage back to are the dark-haired very black-bearded imagery that we get and of course there were these big hats to, to to cover their elongated skulls and they have a similar look to the people that are described in the indus valley and these are the ones that descriptions that would fit down the road somebody like a gilgamesh right as he's depicted or as nimrod who is settling in there they get they get the same sort of description or some of the syrian kings down the road like the hyksos for example and the other two looks are very similar to what the Atlanteans would have been described as in, in many legends around the world. So you're going to get after the flood, you're going to get red hair, 
pale skin, and by the way, the dark-haired ones had pale skin as well. Uh, so red hair, pale skin, hazel eyes, um, or blue eyes, blonde hair, and a pale skin as well. And so many of the Raphaim are described the same way, uh, depending on which branch of them. And typically, this is the same description as the Tuatha de Danan that migrate over to Ireland after the flood um, and into England. They migrate up the Danube River into Norway, into Germany, into Russia. They're going to migrate. Uh, further east is, is, you know, into the northern parts of, of, uh, Southeast Asia. So like even the Mongolians are thought to be Scythians. Scythians are part of the Indo-European, Indo-Aryan group and part of that whole sort of Tartarian sort of mythos as well, noting that Tartar of the Ukraines and Tartarian, uh, goes back to the, the, uh, the original word in Greek as Tartarus for the abyss of where they came from. So these are the different groups and the different looks that we get after the flood. And they also mesh up to the same descriptions as we get of giants before the flood. And so from that polytheist perspective, that shows a survival of, of the giants. But again, the red haired ones and the blonde haired ones have a very distinct sort of look to to them that the Raphaim are described as. Uh, Horim, for example, goes back to pale, and they're described as being fair-skinned. Uh, and, and if they're called fair, that means they were beautiful as well in, in the Bible. And ruddy is that red hair sort of look. But the Amorites also have a blonde hair look to them as well, and they're hybrids, um, offspring of Raphaim. So those are the ones that are taller than the Israelites that we talked about in the report that uh, was talked about, Numbers 1333 of the Scouts of Moses that uh, went in to investigate the land of, of Canaan at the time of the Exodus. And they also have blue eyes as well, for the most part. And so the Raphaim tend to be more this red hair and blonde haired ones, and they're not quite as tall as what we described um, Gilgamesh as. So he tends to be more of that other breed that seems to be a little bit bigger than the Raphaim giants are. Okay, well, the, the, there's our four. I, I, I think I, I might have lost count there, but there was at least three I can think of. Um, I, I, I guess they didn't go all the way down into, uh, you know, sort of China, Thailand, Cambodia, that, that part of the world. They sort of stayed a little bit north, and I guess they didn't go down into... Africa at all? They didn't go into uh, you know the Arabian Peninsula and beyond. So I think they did. Okay. Um, and and you know I think uh, that uh, they they probably you know migrated all around the world. I mean they were dominating civilization both before or the flood and then again after the flood. Just by their size. And we get an indication of that as some of the Orientals uh, and the Aryans, right? So the Aryans who migrated to Persia and then to the Indus Valley, um, they obviously migrated east. And those religions that they were um, practicing, uh, which would have been an antediluvian religion, and we would understand that antediluvian religion as Zoroastrianism, is sort of the foundation, and they use the same gods and the same words as Hinduism. And then this religion is exported to China and Southeast Asia. So there's a migration there one expects 
because there were priests and warriors and kings of the time that they would have exported themselves their own religion. Biblically, we get uh, the Cadmonites, which would be I would call the Cadmonim. They're in Genesis 15. They're not in the table of nations either. Um, and these are the Eastern peoples. And so these are the Eastern giants that would be classified more as not just Eastern as in Persia or in maybe into the Indus Valley, would actually defined as Oriental as part of the tribe. So I think we get some descriptions biblically of the giants that are going to the East. And then in the end time, you might get a reflection of that as the kings of the East, as the kings of the Orient, as those bloodlines um, sort of descend down through history. I know that's, a, that's sort of a big jump. I'm just trying to give sort of a, a cross-reference from uh, the Cadmonim that are described that are in the East and how they're described in Hebrew, how far East that is. Okay. Fair enough. And I think that's great. I mean, we, we can only do overviews here anyway. Uh, we can't do, uh, you know, what's probably hours of, of courses, if not days. Um, I have a question for you, and it may not be related at all, but some of these ancient languages, sometimes I hear the term Enochian, sometimes you hear about speaking in tongues. Are, are these those ancient languages, or is it something else entirely? Well, Enochian, if that's what you're referring to, one would expect that that would be an antediluvian language, because Enoch, and there's two Enochs. Uh, biblically, there's one that's the son of Cain and one that's the son of Jared. Uh, in the two lines of Cain and Seth uh, before the flood, and both wrote scripture. Okay. And so, well, you so tell me what is which which one does so, which one does Enochian refer to? I always assumed it was the Enoch from the Book of Enoch, who was sort of uh, pre Noah. You know, I think it's his great great grandfather or something, uh, who you know was sort of you know d disappeared he ascended with god he didn't die he he was ascended yeah. but maybe i'm wrong maybe it's the, this uh enoch you know for you know six generations down well there as and, and that's what has happened there's been a, a conflation whether it's deliberate or just by uh mistakes of, of the two they're both very important figures before the flood and the uh, the Gnostics within Freemasonry and ancient Masonry, they take their history back to before the flood and that their creation is the start of the knowledge that is separated into what is called the seven sacred sciences in the Polychronicon in the history of Freemasonry that Enoch, son of Cain, separates the knowledge into. And Enoch learns his knowledge from his father Cain, who learned it from Adam, who learned the knowledge from Adam in the Garden of Eden. But he's going to use the knowledge differently than what uh, Adam was taught to, to use it. And Enoch's going to develop Enochian mysticism, as it's also called, with the development of this knowledge that uh, is going to start mysticism before the flood, which is thought to be the parent polytheist religion before the flood in some circles, and that um, they're going to develop um, not only the, the mystical religion, but the mystery schools to go with it to develop those seven disciplines from which the secret societies take their beginnings from. So Freemasonry would look at Enoch as one of their greatest patriarch, just as they would look at um, Tubal-Cain, um, Jubal and Jubal 
as sons of Lamech, that's part of the Canaanite uh, lineage, um, as part of their greater patriarchs as well. And that this knowledge and this writing is recorded in 36,525 books stored in nine vaults underneath the pyramids. Um, and the location to that knowledge is recorded on two different pillars in, in the Masonic record, one being uh, one that wouldn't be destroyed by fire and one that wouldn't be destroyed by flood. So the knowledge location is going to be found. That's found by Hermes after the flood. He takes it back to Babel to Nimrod, who uses knowledge for Babel Tower or Babel City and whatever else and starts the Enochian mysticism again. So that would be the language of Enochian mysticism that would have been carried from a Masonic and a biblical source after, after the flood. Now, Enoch is completely different than of, of the Masons than Enoch, who is the son of uh, Jared. He's the one who's taken to heaven. Uh, and Enoch son of Cain, he's actually recorded uh, in, in, in the book of Enoch, uh, and I think there's a bit of a corruption there, but he's recorded as being 500 or 550 years old. Enoch, son of uh, Jared, is taken up to heaven at 365 years right. old. So you've got two different kinds of scripture that you have to be careful with as you're looking at, particularly when we don't have original Hebrew manuscripts on, on any of these. And you, should, you should write so a book called the two tongues. You should, you should write the book called the, the two Enochs. Yes. Well, I start off the first book with a lot about it, my oh, first okay. eight or ten chapters. And a lot of people uh, will get a hold of me, particularly Christians, and say, uh, I don't like the picture you're painting about Enoch. And my point is, is to get people to understand there's two. Right. <laughs> right. And then I, I sort of uh, reveal that as, as the book sort of unfolds. And when you're talking about tongues, uh, as in a spiritual gift that's talking tongues, you could get some antediluvian languages in there as well. So when they're speaking of tongues, there's two different entities that are providing that ability to speak in tongues. One would be from the Holy Spirit, from the, from the Christian perspective. And if it's from the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a translator and it's going to be a language that is known within the earth today. Typically, if it's an unknown language, there won't be a translator there, and that would be a demonic spirit, and that would be possibly antediluvian. Okay. So, all right. Well, thank you for that. Um, all right. So we have our different lineages. We have their uh, various migrations, um, which is, you know, pretty much worldwide. Um so your other area of sort of notoriety is megalithic structures. And uh, I, I'm sure that's tied into giants as well, because uh, big, big beans make big buildings, right? Possibly. Possibly. That's what a lot of people think. I would say that a lot of the megalithic buildings, ones before the flood, depending on the age, um, would have been built to accommodate giants, for sure. And one presumes because that they were from the sixth generation on, you have to remember they're not created right from the beginning, from a biblical perspective, that they would have had these buildings sort of built for them as in the kings and controlling the societies. But it's the technology that's more important, I think. Okay. And so, again, the Masons, uh, from their records, it 
attribute the technology to build the buildings that were built in that period from the knowledge that Enoch had developed. And so he is, that's one of the reasons why he's considered those patriarchs. But you also have buildings that predate that area, that in polytheism as well, that they say were built by the gods in an age before humans. So you, you have to make sure you're distinguishing, again, the ages of the buildings and the chronology to sort of slide things in. But the pyramids are thought to be built from the technology, at least according to the Masons, from the knowledge of Enoch, and one of the reasons why they buried all of his knowledge under the Great Pyramid. Now, we can't build those buildings today to that level of degree. Uh, we can't, I mean, the amount of astrological and uh, astronomical alignment that's in there, the amount of sacred geometry that's encoded in there, the exactness of it, the scale of the projects, we can't do today. And it just shows you the level of the technology that they would have had beforehand. So somehow they would have had to move these great megalithic blocks, whether or not it's a, you know, a, a stone that's in Stonehenge or it's building the pyramids or many of these megalithic blocks. In polytheism, there's this idea of, of, of anti-gravity that was used using the ley lines and energy and the knowledge to be able to do that. And with the knowledge that would have been developed in Enochian mysticism, which is the same religion of Atlantis, that they would have had this knowledge to be able to, to, to lift those and put those blocks in, in, into place. So I think it's more the knowledge than the strength of the physical giants to do it. They may have helped in some of the manual labor, um, but typically they were the nobility class. They were the kings, they were the priests, and they were the warriors, and they were the elite class. So, so typically, they, I would think they would have been using slave labor like humans and technology to go along with that. Okay, so it was more about harnessing the Earth's energy, the, the, the ley lines, if you will, um, almost like, a, you know, not to make a two-tribe, but almost like, Professor X or the Scarlet Witch could move large blocks uh, with their minds, but it's, it's not their minds. They're they're harnessing. They figured out some way to harness the actual energies of the earth to do the heavy lifting for them. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. Um, it makes it makes the most sense to be able to do that. And you know, we're just catching up to their technology. So, you know, if you look at some of the records in polytheism, you get. Uh, the creation of all of these different fanciful creatures, whether or not it is, you know, Pegasus or it's Chimera or, you know, King Hababa of the Cedar Forest is this classic Chimera type of giant king. He's got multiple different kinds of animals. This is all suggesting DNA manipulation. And we're just catching up to that now, just as we're just catching up to their building technology uh, as, as we move into, in, into the future. And there's an interesting word that's used in the flood story in the Bible that the whole earth was corrupt and there was violence all in the earth. Well, that word corrupt, it might include the violence, but it's not the whole meaning. If you take that back to Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word shakah, and that means to to ruin, to decay, to manipulate, to destroy, to spoil. The whole 
Earth was corrupt. That means all of the plant genomes. That means all of the animal DNA, human DNA, except for, as a lot of people would set forward, and I would tend to agree, maybe the eight that were, were put on the ark, and then any of the animals that were called to the ark by God, because he would know which ones were best representative of the species that kind was is used is a word that we use in English that uh, goes back to a meaning that means species in Hebrew, to replenish the earth without that DNA manipulation after the flood. Of course, all the plants would have been wiped out, but regrown anew after the flood. So it sounds like they had a DNA expertise, whether or not the giant has had that. I think they did to a certain degree. I know the gods did, the, the fallen angels, uh, and they created all of these different types of beings. I mean, they created the centaurs in a cloud. And this is a completely different kind of creation than the creation of the heroes, right? This is something that's unique, and you get another type of animal that's integrated. It's almost like that combination that we get as part of the clue with the giants in Sumeria, where you have their one-third human and two-thirds God, right? There seems to be, in some of these, they're either one-third animal, one-third human, and one-third God, or there's a God that may have looked like that, that passed that on in their physical form as part of the DNA, because you get things like linemen of Gad, and you get all of these sort of lion warriors that show up on reliefs and things all around the world, um, and, and other kinds of different-looking giants and warriors that are created in the same way as the Nephilim and, and, and the Rephaim were. So I think that what we're seeing in, in, the, uh, in the flood story in the Bible is, is that this was a technology that was way beyond what we have right now that we're just just starting to catch up on to. And this is the knowledge that was passed on to Nimrod uh, after the flood. And again, one of the reasons for the disbursement of the languages is was that, that, that knowledge that, that was going to be used in a way that God didn't want it to, to be used from a biblical perspective. And so when we get into the end of time, we get that as one of the overarching signs that Jesus provides. We get birth pangs, we get the fig tree generation, and we get the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, which is used in Genesis 9.29, you get 600 years before the flood, 350 years after the flood, and it's the exact same language. So I think we're being guided to learn about everything that was happening before the flood, and even again shortly after the flood, and the level of technology that they had. So it's just to catch up to the past, in, in other words. Yeah, nothing as new as under the sun. You have the same principle in uh, polytheism that things happen over and over and over again in different ages. Um, just a different lens as to how people are looking at that through. Interesting. Yeah, that, that happens a lot. I mean, you know, we see it in fiction. Uh, recently, I did a deep dive into Battlestar Galactica, and they kept saying, this has all happened before, it will all happen again. Um, yep. Yeah, obviously, Battlestar yep. Galactica didn't invent that. They, they took it from someplace else, but it's interesting. Um, all right, so I think we covered the the, the giants and and sort of their uh, interbreeding and migrations with regular humans. Uh, covered the megaliths a little bit. So un unless there's stuff that that, that that you view as essential or critical to this narrative, I would love to go to this four horsemen end of days stuff because I think that's that's sounds like it will be intriguing. 
Um, but if there's if there's essential critical information to to make that bridge more natural, feel free. I mean, you you know the stuff better than yeah. I do. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and there's always more to talk about, right? But if, one of the points that I like to try and communicate to people is that if you want to understand end time prophecy, uh, biblical end time prophecy, uh, and it will also help you with other end time scenarios from other belief systems, you need to understand prehistory. So you need to understand who the gods were or the angels and the fallen angels as they are in, in, in the Bible. If you want to understand end-time prophecy, you have to understand everything that happened in the prehistory because it has that allegory or that context that is provided within, time, within end-time prophecy. And this is a continuation of the same narrative. So what's being played out is you know, being played out on what has happened before. So when we look at the four horsemen, uh, in Revelation 6, these are quite interesting beings. And, you know, they ride out on four different colored horses and they have, you know, the famous uh, four different types of, of uh, disastrous catastrophes that they're, they're kind of kind of bring with them uh, for the last seven years of, of this age. And, and over the years, I mean, I, I looked at many, many, many different versions as to what people thought they were or what they what they might be um but what's interesting is that there's a uh, as they're describing the riders on these horses and it's the riders that we we should focus on um that they're when they're described in the pronouns in greek as him or he um it goes back it's a self-reflective pronoun um, that is rooted in autos. So, but it also means a baffling wind, a wind that might go backwards. It's and and wind when you're talking from uh, biblical beings and allegories are very very much akin to angels. So that if you go back into the Old Testament with the word uh, spirit, um, ruach is is the Hebrew word that that can mean wind, it can mean air, but it can also mean an angel. It can mean a spirit of a being. It can mean the Holy Spirit. You get sort of the concept. So it's one of the words that's used for angelic beings. And that you have a description that's in Zechariah 5 of these beings that come from uh, before the throne, just as the four beings before the throne in Revelation 6 come from. And these have the four chariots and they're the riders. And these are beings and they're called spirits. Again, it goes back to that Hebrew word ruah. So these are four angels that I, I classify as the four angels of prophecy uh, that have been working throughout all of the time, at least from a post-Diluvian perspective from after the flood. And that these are the ones that Daniel describes as the four winds, the four ruach, that blow blow up the four beast empires in Daniel 7. And the Daniel 7 empires are describing uh, several of the uh, world empires, not the two that came before, but the ones at the time of Daniel going forward. So Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, 
the end time empire and then the eighth empire which is antichrist i won't go into all the detail of the two other ones assyria and egypt would be the other two beast empires and they're stirred up out of the sea or the gentile nations uh for these world empires that are going to come about and these are the ones that are released in Revelation 6 to bring about the 10 empires, the 10 groups of nations, the 10 spheres of influence that are going to work with the universal ancient Babylon religion of old. And Babel, Babylon is rooted in the Hebrew word Babel. So this is the, the religion of Nimrod and Babel that we're talking about. And by the way, Nimrod is classified as the first Grand Master of uh, Masonry after the flood, because he wrote the first constitution after the flood. One of the great patriarchs as well, who had in reinstituted Enochian mysticism that, that we had talked about. This is that religion that is being talked about in the allegory of Babylon and the antediluvian religion of the Nephilim. So oh, there the the Babel religion after the flood is also the religion of the giants it's the religion of the Rephaim, and it's the religion of the beast empires it's a polytheist universal religion of old and so this is what they're stirring up these 10 kings with the babel religion that's going to ride these empires as described in revelation 17. it rides the seven empires the seven kings and it is a it is more than just a religion. It is a universal religion. It's described as a mystery religion. All of the imagery, whether or not it's prostitute or harlot, all the different descriptions are Old Testament descriptions for the polytheist religions. Um, but it is also a geopolitical network as well that is going to bring make it so that these 10 groups of nations can come together as a world government. It's 10 kings ruling it with one representative from each of the 10. And it's going to control that empire. And it's also going to control um, all of the commerce in the world. So it's going to be a system as well, a trade and a commerce system. And it grows fabulously wealthy. And the 10 kings actually grow jealous of it. They're going to partner with Antichrist to overthrow Babylon at the midpoint of the last seven years. And it is a system that is building this, uh, the platform for Antichrist to, to, to come to power on. So we need to understand it as a city, which it is because it's called the city nine times in the book of Revelation. It is a religion, a universal religion. It sits on all the waters of all the people around the world, as Revelation 17 talks about. It is a geopolitical network, and it is a banking, trade, and commerce uh, control uh, entity as well. And this is what is being introduced as the first rider comes out, where you have uh, a world that's going to come out uh, with the white horse and the rider with a bow and a crown. And the bow is a simple fabric, as in what the gods used to wear, that simple white robe. And the crown is uh, the crown that's sort of thought in terms of the and defined as a uh, a, a in sort of a Christian perspective as the crown of thorns, but in a polytheist and Greek perspective, it was a laurel wreath hmm. of the gods, the crown that they would wear, and they also awarded the Olympians. And this is the rider that's going to come forth uh, in this type of uh, description to bring about um, 
the opening of the seals and to have the con to conquer and to conquer the world. And this is the entrance of Babylon onto the scene that's going to enable the covenant in Daniel 9.27 to be negotiated for the ten kings to come to power, but subservient to the woman who rides the beast. Wow. There's a, there's a lot there. So this, I mean, basically it all goes back to the fallen angels uh, who, who I guess were, are still trying to wage their war, uh, which, you know, I guess they don't think that they lost. They were on hiatus or, or uh, they've, they've just changed it to a longer game. Is it a longer plan? Is that a, a very highly simplified way of d describing it? And this is sort of the, the end game prophecy? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like an end game, uh, for sure, using a chess analogy. And uh, it is something that the, the follower, followers, um, knowingly or unknowingly, want to bring upon the earth. They want a showdown. They want a showdown to win their freedom from the evil god of the universe. So um, when you look at that movie, you know, like Doctor Strange, for example, right? And... Earth is wanting to be this place that is separate from this evil overlord of the universe. They're trying to win that. And that's been the war all along in the War of the Gods. It's not that the angels that rebelled thought that they could defeat God. Um, they just wanted to be on their own. And they wanted to have one that was going to rule over them, that was going to rule differently, that would be like God, as Isaiah 14 talks about. And so this is that ongoing sort of struggle that uh, is going to be coming on the world, that's going to be playing sort of in the background, that this showdown is wanted, and it's people are going to be asked to fight for their freedom against the evil lord of the universe or the evil forces of the universe. Now, depending on which side you're on, is going to describe yourself as being good, and on the other side, the other side's the evil one. So depending on what your belief system is, is what you're going to have to sort of figure out and sort of make your choice, because no choice is still going to be a choice. So, yeah, this is the end game. This is the denouement from a biblical perspective of the angelic rebellion. And it's the reason for the creation of the Adamites as a special commission to resolve the angelic rebellion. And all of this is going to play out in the last seven years when that comes about. So is this seven years, is this tied to the seven signs? Well, there's going to be lots of signs. And so when you have like the seven signs would be more, more of a polytheist tradition than a Christian tradition. So there will be signs on both sides as well. So it's going to be rather confusing. The seven years is the seven years of the seven weeks of years in Daniel 9 that's talked about for the 70 weeks. There's one week that's reserved for the last seven years, uh, which is, you know, seven days, seven years, using the, the analogy there. And that's the uh, covenant that... Uh, uh, Antichrist, who is is not going to be the Antichrist at that time because he's not been crowned yet. But he's going to be the one who negotiates that covenant. So there will be a lot of allegory. There will be a lot of signs and stuff that will be dressed all around uh, these kinds of events. Um, but the seven years are specifically those seven days that are set aside. So now when you look at whether it's Daniel 
um, 12, for example, or Daniel 11, uh, or Revelation 13, or Revelation 17, they're talking in these terms of the seven years, seven uh, lunar years, 360 days in a lunar year. And so you have three and a half years that are before the abomination and the crowning of the Antichrist and three and a half years after. And you have uh, three and a half years of the reign of Antichrist, as is talked about in Revelation 13. You have three and a half years when the people of Judah are going to be permitted to do a sacrifice on the wing of the temple until Antichrist stops that at the midpoint of the last seven years. So it's seven physical years is what I'm saying. But do, but do expect other allegories and signs to be wrapped around that as well from both sides. Okay, so what are, let's just take uh, three signs that we should look for on either side of this conflict. In terms of? Well, what are the signs, I, I guess? Like, so what would be three signs for the, uh, the, I guess, for the Antichrist sign, and then three signs that it would be for the Christ sign, side, sorry. Well, so so biblically, we're not going to get those signs, right? Mm -hmm. All we get is a sort of generic term. And But if you're looking for indications of the time that we're in or what they'll do, I mean, the first thing, before you can even think about having the last seven years is you're going to have to have a universal religion in place. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take something strong like that to permit the sacrifice on, on a wing of the temple. Um, I get... I, I get concerned when people are using like Revelation 12 as a sign, which has used quite a bit in the last few years because they're getting chronology sort of out of order in terms of what they're trying to use. But that will be one of the major signs that are going to be seen in, in, in the heavens with, with, with uh, uh, you know, the woman and the 12 stars. And that's going to be used by Babylon as well. So they're going to use the same type of imagery. And Babylon, the woman, is just thrived in the same way as the Revelation 12 description is, but that's referring to Israel and the 12 tribes rather than uh, the other side of it is describing the, the, the coming Babylon religion. So you're going to see signs like that. Jesus is going to have a sign that's probably going to be um, the sign that is uh, showing his wounds. Uh, in the sky for the whole world to see. That will happen after the midpoint of, of the last seven years, just as this other sign, Revelation 12, is a midpoint sign. But you're going to see signs like from what I think are caused by self-caused catastrophes, man-made catastrophes. You're going to see signs like the sun and the moon darkening. Right. You're going to see that from the wars that are going to happen and the earthquakes that are going to happen from the, the birth pangs um, that are listing the four types of catastrophes that repeat all through the fig tree generation and get stronger as you go. And you're going to see that sign more than once in the last seven years. You're going to see it three times of the sun darkening and the stars darkening because you've got three levels of catastrophes coming. You've got the seal judgments at 25%, you've got the trumpet judgments at 33%, and you've got the bull judgments that would be 100% if it was permitted to continue to the end. So we're going to see wars that look like Armageddon. And people will claim there as, as uh, they will be Armageddon, but it won't be. There will be increasing levels 
of, of wars that, that are going to happen. Um, look for increasing uh, worldwide pestilence uh, and famine and more wars and rumors of wars. And it's going to take these catastrophes to form the 10 kings, the 10 groups of nations, if indeed we are in the fig tree generation, which would be the last generation of this age that will lead into the last seven years. Um, you've got a uh, wormwood sign that a lot of people like to talk about. Um, but that's in Revelation 6, and I think that's a catastrophe that comes with the wars of of uh, of 25% people being killed in, in, in the seal judgments. And wormwood basically, you take that back into Greek and you, Greek and you take that back into its Old Testament meanings coming out uh, and you get wormwood in the Old Testament, basically means a poison. So all the waters are going to be poisoned. So a lot of people think this is going to be a planet coming in. You know, I don't think we're going to see an extinction event like a planet coming in or that close that's going to be like a wormwood. But we're going to see things in the sky that we haven't seen before that's going to cause people to tremble. And it could be all sorts of things like meteorites and asteroids. But there's also a war in heaven that's going to be played out in Revelation 12 with the war of the gods that we probably will see in the skies as well. So... What are the major signs? I mean, I can't imagine what all of the signs are going to be that are going to be pulled out um, because we're not we're not granted any of that that I'm aware of in, in any of the in any of the cultures. But it's going to be a ruckus, chaotic time um, that nobody would want to live through. Okay. So let me get off of my specifics. Uh, on this point, because you did just mention all of the culture. So, uh, you know, let's, let's leave the biblical for, for a moment. Um, are, are there similar scenarios played out in non-biblical, uh, we'll just call it scriptures or canon stories, myths, lore, legends? Um, you know, are there, you know, similar end of days type stories that, that have enough in common? There are, and it, it sort of begins with 2012. Um, that's sort of a standard sort of idea that, that, that there's different ages that are out there. And in this age that is known as Aquarius today from the Zodiac, that this is an age where there will be a disruption by fire, just as you get the predictions in the Bible of destruction by fire uh, for the destruction of the world not totally because Jesus steps in from a biblical perspective, but you get this destruction by fire that happens in the age of Aquarius. This is a standard understanding in most religions around the world that there is this period that the world has to go through, that there will be this leader that comes along in most of the religions that will lead us into the, the new age, the new age millennium into the future, into this evolution, into another level of being. There's a whole bunch of different terms for it from the different religions. They have different names for the different in individuals. Some call them the new Buddha, as in Hinduism, or Lord Maitreya is going to be that one that comes along. You have uh, in the Shia Islam, you have the Mahdi. The Sunnis have another one. There, you have these individual all throughout the world. In Gnosticism, you have this great 
monarch that they like to talk about from the elven bloodline uh, of the ancient bloodlines that's going to step forward. This is a common standard understanding about what's going to happen in the end time. And there's going to be this destruction by fire and this, these great battles that are fought. They just have a different version of what that outcome will look like. Well, I, I have to wonder how we'll ever know who that person is since, you know, the, the religions tend not to agree with each other uh, ex externally and internally. I mean, there's something like 30,000 different denominations of, of Christianity alone. Um, yep. So uh, it's going to be a little bit hard to figure out who is that unifying figure, whatever name you want to give them. Uh, it's it's going to be, you know, uh, I, I don't even know how the 10, you know, if there, if there really is this board of directors of 10 uh, heads of families, I, I assume, or heads of states, which are probably heads of families, how, how they even agree amongst themselves. Typically it's 13. 13? So how we get Typically from... Typically 13 families is the core in the West and then 13 families, that's the larger grouping around the world. No, they, they don't agree. There's rivalries, right? And one should expect if... This is that convergence of time that you will see representatives from many of these bloodlines around the world claiming to be the one. And biblically, we're told to be prepared in the epistles of John and in, in, in Mark 24 and 13 that there'll be many antichrists. And there's a war that happens uh, with this alliance from the east of the Gog War in Ezekiel 37 and 30. I mean, 38 and 39, that happens in the end time. And Gog is the chief leader on this, of this group. And Gog, uh, Magog, and Magog, and all these other names that come out of the Table of Nations, Gog doesn't come out of the Table of Nations. It comes out of nowhere into this end time prophecy. And Gog was a, <laughs> unbelievably, was a offspring of a god and a human female. Um, so Iapetus, in, as a parent god, um, in Greek mythology, um, had several sons. One was Elbion, one was Magog, and the other one was Gog. And Gog, as you take that word back in Ezekiel, and as it's described in in the book of revelations in another gog war that comes at the end of the millennium that goes back to uh, both greek and hebrew as an end time antichrist figure so you're going to have probably several candidates and it's going to be very very messy and what my advice to people is is don't look at every president that comes along or any new political leader anywhere around the world and start pointing that's antichrist that's antichrist you're going to get it wrong. Right. You're not going to know until after the counterfeit Armageddon. Okay. All right. I have two questions, uh, even though we, we seem to be sort of wrapping up, but uh, how'd we get from Ted, 10 lines to 13 houses? Where'd the extra three come from? Oh, so you're referring to the standard sort of 10 that's used in the antediluvian world? Yeah, I guess I was, uh, maybe There's I was misunderstanding that those 10 bloodlines, those 10 grain houses, uh, were there, but then you uh, corrected me that there were 13. So, uh, yeah, so I'm okay. So, 10 is a number that is sort of an antediluvian number that was used for 10 generations, 10 great kings. Uh, 13 is the number that the Western Europeans 
and their bloodlines and their secret societies like to utilize. So they have a hierarchy within their royal bloodline uh, secret society. So like Freemasonry is kind of at the bottom, the first level of adepthood. And as you move up the Thelmic tree, as they like to call it, you have the Illuminati and then the Rosicrucians, which starts to get into more of the, uh, I guess, it's more pure of the bloodlines at the top half. You, then you move up into the Committee of 300 Families, and you move up into the uh, Council of 33, and then you have the 13 families. That's the number that is generally sort of utilized of the 13 Western families. What I'm also being told is, is that several of these 13 families are amongst families from around the world that are... Um, trying to rule the world but the amount of if you're talking about the 10 kings and the bloodlines that are going to rule uh within the prophecy the 13 families from around the world and the 13 western families are out there and, and working in this direction but they're going to reestablish from old the 10 king empire just as atlantis had 10 kings and they're trying to reestablish the new atlantis as francis bacon wrote about um in his uh classic work that is sort of uh the one of the beacons of the the sort of ideology and they want the new atlantis and they're going to develop these 10 kings from around the world okay so, so 13 families right so with the, ten, 10 times 10 kings even though these are going to be bloodline kings Okay, so the 10 kings were kingdoms around the world. The 13 are families, mostly Western Europe, well, maybe exclusively Western Europe, uh, though I guess there's been some expansion. There might be some overlap, there may not, but at some point the 13 will try to strike unifications with, I, I suppose, the heads of some of those 10 kingdoms or recreate the 10 kingdoms. Is 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 that sort of what, what, what we're saying? Well, you're getting... Yeah, you're getting different forces that are trying to bring in the New World Order. And you get different factions that have a different sort of perspective than what the Europeans are, which are dominating the sort of rules-based order they like to talk about. So you're getting pushback from President Xi, for example. And you're getting pushback from um, Putin in China. And you're getting pushback from other countries. They want a New World Order. They want a larger role in the new world order, and they want the Europeans to have a, a lesser role. So however it ends up as 10, that's the number that the West has picked because, uh, as an example, they created the Club of Rome that reports into the Committee of 300, and that was formed in the late 60s, and their job is, was to not only sort of help bring along world government and their very frustrated that they're not getting there as quickly as they want, but they divided the world up into 10 groups of nations. And that's the model they're working on. And it's the number that they pick because I think they're driven by that new Atlantis um, legacy that they're trying to rebuild. So biblically, we're told there's going to be 10. How it gets there, why it gets there, doesn't really matter from a Christian perspective, but from the, the European perspective, that's the number that, that they want to have. And so you've got old bloodlines all around the world that are going to be sort of reintroduced that will eventually rise to control these 10 kings of the 10 groups of nations around the world.
So the Putins would be the Putyanin bloodline of the Scythians that go back through Ukraine, which is why Ukraine is so important to him. And his name shows up in the 1850s. He's the grandfather is the illegitimate son of one of the Putyanin, which is the bloodline of the original czars of the Ukraine. And you have President Xi, who is from the Western Shaw bloodline, uh, which is the Li family bloodline that goes back to the Dragon Kings, um, both before and after after the flood. So you've got these bloodlines that are in place all around the world that are going to be re, I think, reasserting themselves to establish this world order. But it's going to be messy, and that's why you're going to have these wars that are going to go on. But you're going to see Putin want to rebuild his old. Russian Empire. You're going to want to see President Xi have a larger role. He's going to expropriate more countries. That's going to cause wars and rumors of war and probably lead to famine and pestilence and everything else. That's going to be driving the birth pangs leading into the last seven years. Eventually, it's going to get so messy that the world's going to come together with universal religion, with prophecies that we're saying if we don't come together, we're going to destroy ourselves from the from the face of the earth, and they're going to establish these ten kingdoms, and it's going to be governed over by the universal religion. Okay, well, that is a lot, <laughs> and and certainly a lot of that sounds like it's happening now. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that you could probably extrapolate the similar circumstances to pretty much any time in history. But I, I guess the counter to that is, well, of course, this is this this, this is the same struggle. Um, so it's it's just replaying yes. over and over again. Just some of the, the why, names are different. Which is which is why we want to be careful uh, that you know are we in that last generation or not? I think we might be. Uh, I think we might be in the fig tree generation, but we need to see more before we can explicitly say that. And we don't want to get ahead of events and get them all out of order because you just sort of lose your credibility if you do that. So one wants to be careful in terms of that. So predicting signs, predicting dates, just, you know, go mark your place in the graveyard of people who got it wrong throughout the millennia because that's you know, where you're headed. So we want to watch. We want to be careful. I think I think Jerusalem's an important part to the start of the tree generation. Um, and the southern kingdom was the fig tree uh, in prophecy in the Bible, and uh, this is the same allegory that Jesus uses for the fig tree generation that he also, before he goes into the Jerusalem to predict its downfall and gives the signs to the, to the disciples, he kills a fig tree, that this is a barren tree anymore. But he sees in, in but he puts in the signs that when you see this fig tree and it's in bloom and it's in season know that this is the season and it's the fig tree generation parable that he's providing there. So I think that might be it. But like I say, I mean, world government, universal religion, sacrificing on a wing, an extremity or an overspreading of the temple, whichever translation you're reading, those are big hurdles to get over. And so it may take a lot longer than, what people think. And we don't know how long a generation is. It could be 120 years as Genesis 6, 3, or it could be 70 years or 40 years in uh, the book of Exodus. So we want to be very, very careful that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves on this stuff, but we want to watch and monitor it. 
Okay. So in this maelstrom that, that I took us to by saying, I want to talk about end of days, uh, if there's a silver lining there, I mean, there's got to be. So w- what is it that somebody listening to this without getting too caught up in trying to figure out, is it this person? Is it that person? Is it this leader? Is it this philosopher? Is it this religious leader? What can they do in their lives to be on the side of right, you know, w- without having to, you know, say, pick a side and maybe pick the wrong side? Like, what, what can you do day to day just to, uh, you know, be, be on the right side, even though you're not really necessarily doing that much? Well, I would encourage everybody that they need to do more research on their own. They need to be more curious. They need to ask more critical questions. They need to learn more. Uh, they need to be preparing themselves. You've got, you know, people, if, if we are in, in that generation, you're going to have to make a decision. So you want to educate yourself as much as you can about what's happened in history, what's happened in prehistory, what do we see going on today? And just prepare yourself so that when you see things that are continuing to happen in a pattern that is pointing in a direction that I was talking about, you may want to have a closer look. And then you're going to have to decide. But right now, I would I just try and get people to become more curious and to learn more because that's the best preparation for everybody. Whatever your belief system is, make your own decision, but learn about it and make a decision based on on what you've learned. Okay. All right. Well, that I, I think is uh, safe enough to say. I, I was hoping for more like, you know, plant fig trees or something. But uh, <laughs> if it was easy, it would be, if it was easy, it would be critical. So not, not, nothing worth doing is, is easy, I guess is what they say. So, all right, we, we don't get an easy silver lining here, but it is called the Garden of Doom, well, so we shouldn't. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, I would also say hope that it's not that generation because nobody wants to go through this nobody does it is too horrific so hope that we're not there but if we are learn more yeah but then we're just kicking it down to our kids or grandkids or whoever else but uh anyway either way you look at it it's it's it'd be horrific but yeah from a from a you know your your own perspective that that you know not not you you I mean the collective of listener and people living right now sure it's it's that that hope that it's down way down the line is is probably as good as it gets all right well that was very very interesting a lot to think about uh, I couldn't get a happy ending but as I said this is the Garden of Doom so why should I expect one. Um, and uh, we're lucky enough that, that Gary is going to join us again in a couple months with one of the other panelists um, from the NACON conference. And we're going to talk about uh, the, the Nazis and the occult and, and their pursuits and their interests. So just a little teaser there for that. Uh, in, uh, and, but Gary, I, I want to give you this opportunity to promote any of your, your stuff. Where can they find your work, your books, uh, you know, anything that you're doing, how can people support you, learn more about you and, and, and follow your research? So if people are wanting to uh, get a hold of me, the best way to get a hold of me is through my website. That's the uh, Genesis six conspiracy.com. That's Genesis six with the number six conspiracy.com. And on that website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters, so you can get a good feel for whether or not it's the book for you. If you wanted to get a sign 
signed copy. You can get a signed copy uh, from that website, or you can click over to barnesandnoble.com uh, from my website to the buy page or to amazon.com or to amazon.ca or over to Kindle to get the Kindle version. I have a page for the U.S., I have a page for Canada, I have a page for overseas as well. I live in Canada. And if you wanted to ask me a question or if you wanted to get a document on Putin that I might have mentioned or on Xi that I might have mentioned or uh, uh, just name the topic, if I've got that document, I will send it to you. I do not charge for that. And if you wanted to ask me a question, I will get back to you as well and answer that question. And it may take me a couple three weeks to get back to you uh, because of the volume of traffic that I, that I get on the email, but I will get back to you. Uh, if you are wanting to get a hold of me on Facebook, that's the only social media that I do, so you can get a hold of me through my uh, timeline or in Gary Wynn and Genesis 6 Conspiracy group if you want to join that or send me a message on Messenger. Uh, so lots of ways to get a hold of me. Those are the best ways. And uh, if you like what I'm saying, you might also want to Google my name. You're going to find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews on a whole bunch of different topics uh, that you can go to as well. Yep. Thank you for that. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, and I guess we should uh, talk about the conference. So it's the Nephilim Anthrosophy Conference, October uh, 29th and 30th. It's at David Game College in the UK, which I believe is in, in or near London. Uh, but there are virtual tickets so that you can enjoy the conference without having to travel to the United Kingdom. And uh, I, if you just, if you just uh, Google Nephilim Anthropology Conference or Nephilim Anthrosophy Conference, uh, you'll find a link to the site. I will try to remember to put a link in the show notes, but I, I most definitely put a, a link to the show to, to buy tickets in the links to uh, episode 132, which was with Maria Wheatley, another one of the speakers there. So I know 100% it's there. And I believe also 130, which was with Luke Michael Ironside, who's also affiliated with the conference. So I'm not sure if he's speaking this time or not, uh, but the, the link is in 130 as well. Hey, and listen to those shows while you're there also. Um, but uh, I will put it in the show notes uh, as well. And uh, I thank Gary once again for his time and for his uh, general agreement to come on again in a couple months. So, folks, thanks so much for everything. And uh, if you have the time, you can give us a, a rating. You can write a review, refer us to your uh, friends and people who you think need to benefit from a show like this. This is certainly not the only kind of topic that we cover. We're a bit of, we're, we go everywhere in the Garden of Doom. Our roots go wide, deep, and sometimes high as well. Um, so, thank you for all that. And you'll hear us next week again in the Garden of Doom. And I swear I saw me Talking to the Asa And he whispered softly You were here before In a different body
whatsoever.